Welcome to Paranormal Coffee Hour. We're your hosts, Jen. And Courtney. And we're pouring you a strong cup of the weird, the wonderful, and the woohoo. On this episode of Paranormal Coffee Hour, we're talking about the hauntings of Nina and Menasha, Wisconsin. We also have a guest host with us today, Mr. Kent Summer. Say hello, Kent. Hello. So to begin our discussion of Nina and Menasha and the crazy shit that goes on in those cities, we're going to start first talking about the original inhabitants of the area. Most people believe that the Fox River Valley was inhabited by the Menominee, which is true. However, there was a second tribe that lived in that area, and it was the tribe that would give the river closest to Nina and Menasha its name. The Meswaki or Fox tribe, controlled the river. And the Fox River would be a vital link for the French between Canada and the interior and New Orleans. The Meskwaki refused to let French traders use the river without paying a toll. I mean, makes sense. And oftentimes that would start causing some pretty serious issues. We also have the Menominee, who were looking for a little bit more land control in that area. And so by the early 1700s, there starts to become a major issue between the Fox, the French, and the Menominee. So they were not best friends. This just made everything worse. Courtney, can you share with us what happened? All right. We have in the spring of 1730, dusk begins to set in on a village of the Fox Indians located on the western shore of a lake in present-day Menasha, Wisconsin. Tribesmen notice what appear to be canoes approaching their village. This is not unusual. However, as the village stands on the shore of a crucial body of water, this is the water route connecting Lake Michigan to the Mississippi River, a vital artery for traders, trappers, and travelers, the three T's, if you will. The tribe is confident that this is a fleet of French fur traders. More tribesmen arrive at the shore, eager to see what the traders will offer as tribute. For decades, the fox has been demanding tributes for anybody to pass through what they believe to be their waters. Torches were lit. The tribe was ready to conduct business. As the boats drifted closer, the American Indians could see each canoe had canvas coverings over its contents, a common practice for traders to protect their goods from the elements. The canoes formed a line opposite the shore. There was silence. Suddenly, the canvas coverings were thrown off, revealing an army and an arsenal. Without warning, the Indians were rained upon with canister shot, swivel guns, and musket fire. The canoes did not hold fur traders, but rather concealed the fleet of French soldiers. Running in horror for their lives, the fox attempted to retreat into the woods. There they were met by their mortal enemies of the Menominee, conspiring with the French and attacking from the rear. The village was burned, and everyone in it slaughtered. The bodies were thrown into a stockpile and covered with dirt, creating what has forever since been known as Butamore, or Hill of the Dead. So says the traditional tale of the creation of the famous Hill of the Dead in Wisconsin. So famous that the words Butamore are weaved into the fabric of everyday life here. There is Lake Butamore, Little Lake Butamore, Butamore Country Club, Butamore Elementary School, the town of Butamore, and so on. A historical marker at the present site, a park, retells the same tale. Did you know how big that hill was that they made? I know it was very big. It was 12 feet high, 60 feet long, and 35 feet wide. Well, it had a whole village. Mm -hmm. And the massacre took out between 800 to 1,000 of the Fox tribe. Pretty much decimated them. Yep. 
Those who did survive would end up moving south into Iowa, Illinois, and Missouri, and they would join with the Sauk tribe there. That's just sad. All about money already in 1730. Yeah. The French weren't too happy about having to pay those tolls because they were trying to bring goods down from Green Bay to Oshkosh, where then they could be dispersed farther from there down in Milwaukee and other parts out to Lake Michigan and so forth. They also could hook up with other rivers that would then take them over to the Mississippi River, and then they could head all the way down to New Orleans on that. So it was a really important waterway, and they were sick and tired, I guess, of paying the tolls. So what we do know about this war between the Fox and the French was that it would rage on for 25 years. Holy cow. It would cut a merciless scar of torture, bloodshed, and death, the remnants of which can actually still be seen today. Archaeological digs have confirmed many of the battle sites. They've been finding the weapons of choice for the French, including musket balls and mortar shells. Countless American Indian villages were destroyed in the area. Thousands of people were tortured and killed. Skeletons were being pulled out of the sandbars as late as the 1970s. Here's the crazy part, though. In 1863, so during the Civil War, the Chicago Northwestern Railway needed a bridge over the lake upon which this burial site was for the massacre of the Fox Nation. Oh, I was going to say it doesn't sound too bad. And then you went there. Their chosen spot for the crossing on the western bank was within 30 feet of that mound, the Hill of the Dead. In a horrible act, they used the Hill of the Dead and all of its contents as fill for the rail. It makes me sick to think about. There are stories told by former railroad workers who were putting this in as they're grading for the rail. So creating that flat surface, bones, artifacts would start like tumbling out and down into the water. Leaves me speechless. Yeah. So let's talk about, first of all, a horrific massacre that took place. Then we're desecrating a a grave site. And they put the railway bridge in. Now, eventually, it would become abandoned. And today, this lovely railroad bridge was actually converted into something useful, but at the same time, still a bit morbid. And it is known as the Fox City's Trestle Friendship Trail Bridge. I love the friendship part. Now, a few years ago, about five years ago now, I think it was, unfortunately, we had a death on that bridge. We had a shooting take place. There's a couple deaths, wasn't there? Yeah. Uh, I, You know, it makes you wonder what causes some of that stuff. What causes somebody to just go out on a bridge of a walking trail and shoot at random people? I don't even remember what his excuse was either. I think he lost his mind. Well, makes sense. So the big question becomes, have they had issues on this trail bridge, being that it was <laughs> built on top of the Hill of the Dead? And the answer is yes. So stories of the paranormal activity on this site have been rampant for generations. So this goes even back to when the rail was in there. Reports of people suddenly feeling sick, hearing the sounds of drums, gunshots, and screams have been heard. And there's been sightings of shadow people and apparitions. So since we're across on the Trestle Trail Bridge, let's come into Menasha and talk a little bit about Menasha history. Menasha is a word that was created by the Native Americans to mean little island. Treaties with the Menominee Indians would open up this area east of the Fox River for public sale back in the 1830s, specifically 1835. At the time, we had Territorial Governor James Doty. He would be one of the early investors and purchasers of land in that area. 
In 1848, Doty and his associates, including a Curtis Reed, would form the village of Menasha on the channel north of the island. In 1849, Reed and Doty were successful in locating the navigational channel of the Fox Wisconsin Waterway through the North Channel in Menasha. Then in 1854, Menasha would approve $150,000 in bonding to bring the Manitowoc and Mississippi Railroad to town with the intention of establishing Menasha as a principal transportation access in Wisconsin because it would have both water and rail. So this is where the Chicago Northwestern would actually come into play. Well played. Yeah. So we have a lot of progress starting to pick up in the area. The early 1900s would see a shift to industrial production of general and specialized papers, and it would keep the economy strong for Menasha, even through the Great Depression. Today, Menasha continues to be home to some of the world's largest corporations, as well as innovative local companies, including SCA, R.R. Donnelly, Menasha Corporation, Affinity, Advanced Tool, McClone, and Faith Technologies. In the 1980s, this still throws me. We get to see an expansion to the east with the city of Menasha crossing Oneida Street, eventually expanding all the way to Lake Park Road. But then they got too big and needed to make fox crossings. <laughs> yeah. So in the 80s, they expand the city and then they're like, shit, we're too big. Too big. Okay, you're going to be your own little town. Good luck. Get your own police fire. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so... We have a tremendous amount of production coming into this area. And if you are outside of Wisconsin and you don't know this about us, we are a huge state for not only dairy, but paper production. We got the woods, or at least we did. (laughs) You and your wood. Anyway, (laughs) um, so we would produce a tremendous amount of paper in this state. And that would actually start back in the 1800s. We'll get more into that production later when we talk about one of the paper mills, because it was a dangerous profession. Amen. So, Courtney, let's talk about that paper mill. Yeah. So technically, this happened and they weren't even technically at work. The article starts off as death's bomb. All right. Buckle up for this one, peeps. The worst fatality that ever occurred in the history of Menasha took place last night. This is August of 1888. So it was the worst one to that date. Yes, but I have not seen anything this disastrous before. About half past 11 o'clock, the fire bells sounded and it was soon learned that Whitting's paper mail was on fire. About 300 people, composed mostly of boys and men, were standing around watching the blaze when about 20 minutes past 12, an explosion of a bleaching rotary took place. The big rotary was blown about 250 feet east of the mill, sweeping men, boys, and everything that was in the way and landing in a potato patch close by. Can I stop for a second? This rotary, is this like a huge cylinder? Is that what I'm to understand? Yeah, Yeah, I have another article. I'll see if I can find it that actually gives the dimensions of it. Oh, shit. Okay. The number killed is about 14, and they were all struck by the rotary. The correspondent took a walk in the locality where the dead bodies were, and it was the most sickening sight that a person could witness. There were men with arms and legs off, others blown in two, some with their heads blown off, and the majority of the dead were unrecognizable. Jesus. Yeah. A physician was being assisted by two young men, and when they came to a dead body, one of the boys recognized it as his brother. People were stopping the ambulances to check to see if their friends, family, neighbors were one of the dead. Some, most of these people were unrecognizable. That's horrific. So this wasn't even a work day. 
No. So what were these people doing near the mill? Well, because the, the fire mill, alarm went off. The mill was on fire. Oh, okay. They were standing there watching it burn. And they showed up as the fire department. Right. And then it blew up. Oh, shit. The fire, it is said, caught in the engine room, but how it originated is hard to tell. The bleaching rotary is a large iron boiler with bearings on both ends, and in this, the rags are put with a lot of chemicals for the purpose of cleaning. The rotary is about 24 feet long and 8 feet in diameter and weighs several tons. It took a southeasterly turn after the explosion going right through the paper mill office, over the railroad track into Lawrence Gavin's backyard, a distance of about 260 feet. Oh, my God. That's horrific. I can't even imagine. <laughs> Let's be honest here. This paper mill is located in an area where that massacre would have taken place. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it has another massacre that it does itself. Yep. How many people again? 14 only. <sighs> Only 14. I Only mean, 14. A lot were injured. Well, that's 14 dead. There were probably another 100 injured. And you would have to imagine. So, I mean, it threw shrapnel too, didn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It says, um, the mill and the surrounding presented a desolate appearance this morning. And during the entire day, crowds flocked to the scene drawn there by curiosity. The big brick structure is a total wreck. And the large brick smokestack towers above a mass of burned timbers and crushed bricks and portions of the blackened walls which were still standing. Close to and just east of the mill stands the wooden office or what remains of it. One corner of this was struck by the flying rotary and completely knocked off so that it looks now as if it had been hit by one side of a cyclone. With the exception of this building, the mill has the appearance that would be expected after a big fire. The explosion seeming to have had but little effect upon the main structure. After smashing the office, the flying rotary struck the side tracks of the Northwestern and Central roads, and here's where the destruction of life took place. The spectators had congregated along the track to watch the fire, and without warning, the immense body of steel rushed through their ranks, knocking the people in every direction. Oh my God, that's horrible. So was that really the only thing then that happened at the paper mill or or have there been? (laughs) Okay, I'm going to take that as an indication. There's more that's happened there. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, We've got 1887. So a year before, um, they found Colonel Hinson, a bookkeeper at Whitting's paper mill, telephoned up to town for the proper authorities to come down to their works as a body was floating in the canal near the flume. Justice Williams repaired there and a jury was impaneled. The body was that of Martin Makofiski, a man who has lived here the past few years. The remains were taken to his home, which that was where you waked the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you would take him back home for the wake. The conclusion point to suicide acts. He was missed since yesterday morning. No causes assigned for the act and possibly accidental drowning may be the verdict at the conclusion of the coroner's inquest. Deceased was about 45 years of age and leaves a wife and two or three children. I love the two or three. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> <I don't> know. <laughs> was he an employee at the paper mill? This one does not exactly say. Okay. For our listeners out there, it's important to know paper mills are always located on water because they need a tremendous amount of water in order to do the work. We also have 1901. Now, this one is kind of a happy ending. (laughs) Comparatively. What what kind of happy ending are we talking about here, Courtney? So before there was Great America and... Disney and all this stuff. The cable of an elevator in the Whitting Paper Mill at Menasha broke yesterday noon, and the elevator on which were two men and a boy fell three stories. All were injured, but none dangerously. Oh, it's like the Tower of Terror. Right. Like, what a ride. 
You only get to write it once. Right. Yeah. Hopefully. Well, they live, so maybe they have another. In 1920, Edward Fox was employed at the Whitting Paper Mill in Menasha, suffered a painful injury when the fingers of his right hand accidentally oh. became caught in the calendars. Oh. So for our listeners, a calendar is actually a component of a paper machine. It is a roller that is heated and it is used to smooth the paper out so that it has a nice consistency. Oh, I like that. The hand probably didn't, but I was just going to say, <laughs> you might like that idea, but your hand wouldn't. Yeah, right. That's called leaving your fingerprint on your work. Oh my God. Can you imagine how horrible that had to have been? No, it gives me the chill. Oh, no, thank you. So are we done with tragedies at the paper mill yet, Courtney? No, no. We've Shit. got two more. Oh, my God. All right. So in 1924, they find a painter's body lodged against the flumes. The body of Albert Babcock, 56, a painter, was found at about 8 o'clock Friday night, lodged against the flumes of Whitting Paper Mill at Menasha. What is a flume? I assume those are the smokestacks, but I'm not 100%. I was thinking it was uh, like the water wheel where they intake the water. Or the water spits out. A flume is a human-made channel for water in the form of an open, declining gravity chute whose walls are raised above the surrounding terrain. So you're right. It is an area where the water is coming in or potentially in a paper mill, you have water coming in, but you also have water coming back out that... I would imagine this could even be the So now we have the, the point. water ride at the park. <laughs> <laughs> so the elevator ride and the water ride. Excellent. And don't forget, this was the second body found near the flumes of the waiting paper mill. Oh. And this one was also suicide. Did he wear a seatbelt? Obviously know. not. Yeah, right? And the last one that I have. 1931, Harry Hart, about 65 years of age, employed at the paper mill, is at Theta Clark Hospital with a broken leg and scalp laceration sustained in an accident at the mill Thursday afternoon. A gear on a piece of machinery broke and flying fragments struck Mr. Hart on the right leg, causing a fracture. The scalp wounds, not serious, were sustained when he fell to the floor. Helmet day. You know, we have talked about log moving, you know, like mm-hmm. when we talked about New London and Black River and look, Falls. now we're talking paper. And now we're down to paper because obviously a lot of these logs that have come from some of the other areas we've talked about get sent down the river to the paper mills. Right. And both logging and the moving of the logs and then the turning of the logs into paper is incredibly deadly and dangerous professions. Kind of makes me wonder about the books and stuff. How bad can those places be? The books, as in like the publishing companies? Yeah, like Banta and all that. A lot of them do have paranormal activity at them. Well, I mean, check out the logs <laughs> and then being made. <laughs> Help! <laughs> Some bad juju all the way down there. <laughs> to put an end to most of the tragedies that Courtney's just told us about, the mill finally closed in March of 2016. I had quite a long life. It did. It was five generations old and then one more investor after that for the last 10 years when the paper mill closed down in 2016 they left the building abandoned basically is this like one of those houses they just leave everything including their clothes and run pretty much and of course it then becomes a place where people like to check it out and see what's going on in there and illegally trespass seances anyone Mm mm-hmm 
Now, it's very difficult to find information from previous employees about their experiences. However, I found a little nugget under a discussion that I was looking at about a gentleman who had worked there for about 30 years, and he just left a little bit of information. All he said was, anybody who worked at the Whitting Paper Mill experienced paranormal activity on a daily basis. It was just something we all knew. Now, once the mill would close down in 2016, like I said, people would start trespassing in it and you'd have paranormal investigators, the rookie kinds, that would go in there and try to catch evidence. A lot of EVPs were caught there. There's actually a YouTube video out there of one of the duos that were trying to look for paranormal evidence. They put their YouTube video. (laughs) I feel like that's stupid. I'm going to trespass, but here's my YouTube video. Check it out. Exactly. They were getting one particular spirit that they refer to as Vern talking with them. But a lot of what has been stated from people who illegally trespassed into that location is there would be noises that were unexplainable. They would have things that they would hear falling and see fall, and they would have shadow figures. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Now, you also have to take into account this is right next to the water. Yep. So it is very possible that you do have water noises contaminating what people are hearing. Yep. I've investigated locations next to moving water, and it's very difficult. Could you just be quiet for a minute? Yeah, exactly. Slow that flow down, please. (laughs) (laughs) So needless to say, we take it with a grain of salt on what people experienced after the workers left. You think about that's got to be really loud. And all these mill workers have heard things over the noise of that. Seen things move. Yeah. And by the way, this isn't the only paper mill in Wisconsin that's haunted. Most of them are. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. But this is Menashe's paper mill. And it's one of a very, very old one. And unfortunately, Kent, what happens to it? An enormous blaze. On May 4th of 2021, the building mysteriously caught fire. They never did find a cause to it, but the effect was that the building was unsalvageable. And after three, possibly four days of burning, they decided to excavate the rest of it. Thank God no rotaries went flying that day. No kidding. And so now I believe it's owned by the city of Menasha. The property is. The property is. Mm -hmm. There's a vacant lot now. (laughs) Lucky them. Yeah. So the city of Menasha, it's interesting to see what they're going to make out of it. If it's going to become houses, are they going to put like apartments or condos there? New London would just tear down a whole old historic building and make it green space. There has probably been talk of that with Menasha having some more green space. Who knows? But whatever does go there, it'd be interesting to see. Oh, Did for sure. Did they get activity? I can only imagine they will. So from paper mills, we're going to move downtown Menasha. And one of the recorded locations for a lot of paranormal activity is what is now known as M. Prize Brew Mill, or Brewers of Craft Beer. But it was formerly known as the Blind Pig Saloon. This building was built in the late 19th century by R.W. Schlegel and was originally ran as a dry goods store out of the building. However, this building has had many incarnations over the years. (laughs) including a gentleman's club and numerous bars and restaurants. It is believed that a man was found dead outside of the building in the 1970s, though his death is unknown. Many claims of paranormal activity come from former employees and owners. Such claims include visible apparitions and shadow people, doors opening and closing, and many footsteps are heard upstairs after business hours. 
the new owners of this location that are doing the craft beer. I'm curious to know if when they were doing some remodeling to turn it into a craft beer location, if they kicked up any activity because there hasn't been any recorded incidents since they bought it. Well, that could give you two different explanations then is they don't believe or they just don't want anyone to know. True. Back in 2013, Midwest Paranormal Investigations did a investigation of the location. They were able to pick up lots of noises heard throughout, though they did say it was a little bit difficult to verify whether or not they were paranormal. They have some faint EVPs collected too, but it is a very old location that across the street from it used to be a very seedy hotel, most likely a brothel at one point. Oh, so we're talking about an area that probably had a lot of illegal activity and potentially some deaths due to unpaid debts and such. Yeah, that's (laughs) what we'll go with. The one thing that Midwest Paranormal Investigations did get from that location, which I find really interesting, is some ovilus, which is like a word generator type of machine that we use in paranormal investigations. They got some words on their ovilus that were fascinating because they would reference past Native American wars and battles that took place in the area in the 1700s. That's cool. And that location in Menasha is not far from where all of those battles took place. Moving from craft breweries over into a little bit less uh, seedy area of the town, we have the Menasha Public Library. Oh, I love libraries. I do too. Why don't you then tell us about the history of the library, Kent? Library Association began in 1884, run by Elisha D. Smith, who was a founder of Menasha Woodenware, now known as Menasha Corp. Initially, the library used a room in the high school. In 1895, they built the first freestanding library. It was at the corner of Chute and Milwaukee Street, so it was one block off from the river. Oh, okay. I heard that there was a young woman that would become their first librarian, Lucy Lee Pleasance. And she was also verified to be the first cousin to General Robert E. Lee. She's also the sister-in-law of George Banta, which would become one of the publishing companies in the area. They would then relocate the library in 1898 to Mill Street. Which was the site of Menasha's original high school. Um, Elijah Smith, who you talked about being the founder, would die of cancer shortly after they would move the library to Mill Street. And unfortunately, he did not get to see the building's completion. That seems to be a common theme in our things also lately. Oh, I know. (laughs) Kind of like Morris Pratt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, he would have passed away at a ripe old age then. Yeah. In 1971, the library would move to where it is currently located on First Street, which is still not terribly far from the river, is it? No, that would only be another block or two off from the river. A complete remodel and building addition was done in 2003 to the library. With speaking with library staff, a lot of paranormal experiences continue even in the new location. So what I'm saying is they used to have paranormal experiences in the old, even moving it about a block or so away from the old library, they're having paranormal experiences in the new. So what did they do with the old buildings? What are they? Did they tear them down, use them for something else? I couldn't find anything on that. Yeah, I could not either. Field trip. Amen. (laughs) 
Paranormal experiences in the new library include books falling off of shelves, DVDs being pulled out and turned onto their sides. In the morning when the library opens, books have been found scattered across the floor, especially in the children's area. And that's after everything had been picked up and put away the night before. So Sons I worked at a library for a little bit. That would piss me off. Yes. It sounds like the spirits were having a reading party. Right. Like a rager in the library. And there's more. There was a water faucet found running inside of a locked maintenance closet. Staff have also reported uh, numerous times where they've heard the elevator operating throughout the floors by itself. Going down. Now, it's one thing if a kid hits elevator buttons and like walks out, but this is actually happening outside of opening hours. Jeez. At least the elevator would be empty if it fell. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> no free rides at the Menasha Public Library. Nope. So we're going to move from the library down a few blocks to Menasha School District and their high school. Hang on, let me get in the bus. Are you looking the windows? Not yet. Okay, good. I'm glad the helmet works. <laughs> you get the helmet with the visor. It makes it more difficult to you lick the windows. You can still suck on your crayons, though. <laughs> Menasha High School, established in 1875. Now, during the 1940s, a series of tunnels would be built beneath the school in case of a nuclear attack. According to legend, the tunnels and school are allegedly haunted by the spirits of four students who became trapped in the tunnels. Now, I think the schools embellish this story because they said they were trapped while trying to skip class. Well, and almost every place that you hear of that has tunnels, there's always four people that are trapped in the tunnels and die. <laughs> True. In addition to encountering the former students' apparitions, many also report hearing the sounds of disembodied pounding, screams, and cries for help coming from the tunnels at night. Now, from what I remember from working in Menasha School District, these tunnels, I believe they have metal doors on them, if I'm remembering correctly. There's doors. That much I know. I think they're metal and they're locked. They're not easily accessible. So trying to keep people away. To keep people out or are they locked to keep people in. And can you hire a locksmith or get a lock picked get in? I don't know. I'm going to take you over to the school I worked at and the crazy shit that happened there. Get back on the bus. Back on the bus, people. We're headed over to Gigan Elementary in Menasha. So I worked for Gigan Elementary back in 2016. And when I was teaching there, I was team teaching with a fellow teacher who had been at Gigan for a while and who would remain there after I had left. And she was a very, very hard worker. So she'd be putting in hours well after school was done into the evening and sometimes even on weekends. Now, when you do that as a teacher, you tend to make really good friends with the maintenance staff because those are the people who help get you in. Well, right. Especially if you don't have a key. One evening when she was working, she would head down to the book room where we would keep multiple copies of, of different titles of books that we would use for guided reading lessons. And this book room was freaky as shit, by the way, because it just had an energy to it that when you walked in there, you're like, yep, going to grab my books, get the hell out of here. Well, she was getting her books when she heard books falling off the shelf yeah. and thinking, okay, what the hell? Did I knock something over? Because there is a bookshelf in that room where the book holders go back to back. Okay. So if she pushed a little hard, it's possible. Unfortunately, that's not the area where the books fell from. Oh, dear. The other thing is when she was in that room, she heard footsteps coming down the hall. Now, the maintenance staff were gone because all she had to do 
that evening was, you know, turn off the lights in her room, close the door and walk out. The door would lock behind her. Oh, no. Okay. That meant somebody else had to be in the building. And she knew the maintenance was gone because their vehicles were gone. <laughs> so she Homer Simpsons herself <laughs> into an area of the book room where she like backs in into the hedge and like blends in waiting for somebody who potentially broke into the school for who knows why to come down to that room. Nobody ever did. No, thank you. How long did she wait? I don't quite know, but I know she was scared shitless. So they would hear stuff all the time. And I say they because she would have a friend or or family member with her in her classroom and they would be the only ones there. Maintenance would be gone. And then they'd start hearing like movement in different parts of the school that were close enough to her classroom that she could hear it. So that place always felt like you had a monkey on your back. You felt like you were being watched. No, thank you. The next school I'm going to take us over to is actually closer to Menasha High School. And that is the elementary school of Butamore, Hill of the Dead. There it is. So Butamore is an older school and it is a school that hasn't had a lot of changes done to it. So it's a lot of original items in that school. That's amazing. They usually tear them down already. Mm-hmm. And we would often have trainings at Butamore for certain things, especially reading and I learned from some of the teachers at that time, at least, that many of them would use a buddy system when they wanted to stay at school late or when they wanted to come in on a weekend to work. That's crazy. Because they were afraid of the stuff that they experienced there, whether it was shadows going past their classroom, noises being heard in places, very similar to the stuff we experienced at Keegan. Wow. And I do recall something about a staircase where they would it would sound like kids were crying or playing, something along those lines. What the heck? Yeah. So needless to say, the schools in Menasha are about as haunted as some of the businesses. wonder what those kids are all learning. (laughs) And those are three of the schools that stuck out mostly because I've been to all three of them. But I have heard from some of the other schools, including one of the ones on Doty Island in the Menasha School District, that there's been paranormal activity in most of the schools in Menasha. Huh. Mm Mm-hmm. The last haunted location I'm going to take you to in Menasha, though it isn't the only haunted location, because there's a lot of them there, is just simply a road. Oh, Valley Road. It is said to be haunted by the ghost of a man who was killed in a carriage accident. Now, people claim it was on the day of his wedding, though I feel like that might be a little bit more of an embellishment. But according to motorists in the Valley Road area, his ghostly figure is seen hanging from a tree where his body finally came to rest after his accident. I feel like that one's cliche too. I feel like all the haunted roads always have a story like that too. I know. Except the fact that been reported by a lot of people at least seeing apparitions on Valley Road. It just might be what's the story behind it. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe the guy just walked out and found a tree. And hung himself. Yes. Yeah, it's possible. That could be a wedding day thing. <laughs> I'm not going through with this. Are you insinuating something, Mr. Summer? <laughs> not at all, Mrs. Summer. Okay. So now we are going to head over to its sister city, Nina. So Nina lies just south of Menasha on Lake Winnebago in Winnebago County. Like Menasha, we haven't really talked about this yet. A portion of it is located on Doty Island. So both Menasha has mainland Menasha and then there's Doty Island Menasha. Yep. And the same is true for Nina. They kind of split the island in a, in yes. a half. Mm-hmm. Back in... 
the early stages. Nina was also known as Winnebago Rapids. That one kind of threw me. Originally known as Winnebago Rapids, the name Nina comes from the Ho-Chunk word for running water, and it would be incorporated as the village name in 1856. Nina began as an industrial and agricultural mission for the Menominee Indians in 1835. The power of the Fox River drew settlers a few years later, and it led to the construction of a water-powered flour and lumber mills. Oh, surprise, surprise. Mm -hmm. By the 1870s, paper mills would begin to take over the industrial landscape of Nina. And it's still an industry that remains very important to this day because out of Nina came the very well-known Kimberly Clark Corporation. Kimberly Clark would be founded in 1872, became Wisconsin's largest producer of paper products, and it helped turn the Fox River Valley into the Midwest's paper manufacturing center and Wisconsin into one of the nation's leading producers of paper. This incredible growth and the fact that you have the Menominee Indians there wanting it for an agricultural mission would lead to some complicated internal strife. You don't say. Mm -hmm. So for those of you outside of Wisconsin and maybe not quite as familiar with Kimberly Clark, Ken's going to share with you some of the products Kimberly Clark makes. I know you folks have heard of Kleenex. They also produce Kotex, Cottonelle, Scott, and Huggies. So moving away from Kimberly Clark Corporation, we're going to head over to the shores of Lake Winnebago and Nina, where at one time there was a place with an old council tree that stood that the Menominee Indians would meet for 150 years to do powwows. That's cool. Mm -hmm. That's a very old tree. Unfortunately, the tree would get taken down. That sucks. And they would put a lighthouse there instead. Now, the tree was taken down in the 1880s by the Federal Corps of Engineers when the river channel was dredged and widened. But the lighthouse would be put in its place because this would become an area with a lot of boat traffic. But I like that whoever was in charge then realized the importance of that tree because they made that tree the city of Nina's symbol. They did. And part of the reason was the tribesmen of the Menominee Nation would hold councils under its sheltering arms prior to the 1830s. So it was an important tree for their government. Exactly. Mm -hmm. There is a beautiful cherry tree and other blooming trees around the lighthouse today. It doesn't replace an old tree. It doesn't. But unfortunately, old trees do eventually have to come down. And I thought somebody else said that it was starting to die anyways. Yes. So now as we back away from Lake Winnebago and head into the city of Nina, let's talk about some of the hauntings that are taking place there. So our first haunted location is actually going to be a historic landmark in Nina. It's known as the Smith Octagon House. And it's actually where the Nina Historical Society is located. I love historical societies. Why is it called the Octagon House? Because it is shaped as an octagon. It has eight walls. The Smith Octagon House dates back to the 1950s, less than a decade after the first settlers arrived in the Nina area. It was built with eight sides instead of the conventional four. And it must have been an object of wonder and speculation to a lot of the local residents. I feel like a lot of towns have an octagon house. Yeah, yeah, New London too. The house was topped with an octagonal cupola, and it was set on a prime location with its wide front veranda overlooking a lawn that led to the beautiful tree-lined shore of Little Lake Butamore. 
Ooh. Octagon houses were the inspiration of Orson Squire Fowler, who wrote a book extolling their merits. So I think that's why we started to see a lot of them popping up. I would like to know what are their merits? Well, let me tell you. He said, he pointed out in his book that the windows of eight sides of the house not only brought in more sunshine, light, and fresh air, but it eliminated the dark corners found in conventional houses. Oh, he does not like what's hiding in the corners. (laughs) Got it. Over a thousand of these innovative houses were built in America between the 1850s and 60s, and 40 of them in Wisconsin. Oh, so there's quite a few more out there. Yeah. Damn. So the first owner of the Octagon House in Nina was Edward Smith. He was a prosperous flour mill owner. Later, his brother Hiram, who was a merchant, a paper mill owner, and a stove manufacturer. Guy gets around. Yeah. He would become the owner after his brother. Not only did Hiram do those things, but he was also a founder of the Manufacturer's National Bank, which we still know today because it's known as Chase Bank. Holy shit, those are big banks. Mm -hmm. The Smith family occupied the house for nearly 70 years, and Hiram's widow Vesta lived in it until her death in 1919. The house then passed through a John Brown to the Quinn family in 1923, and it would remain in their hands until the Historic Society bought it in 1993. Many changes had occurred to that octagon house over the years, and the original 30-foot octagon was enlarged three times, twice in its early existence with brick that matches the original construction, and then a third time much later with wood siding. So I saw the picture. Does that even make it an octagon house anymore? It's like an octagon attached to a rectangle. Yeah, right. (laughs) Then the cupola would come down sometime in the 1930s, and why would that be, Kent? A lot of those older houses that had cupolas didn't account for the extra weight and structural stress that that extra room would bring. So rather than try to build the house up to support it, it was easier to take it down. The Quinn family would convert the house into three apartment units, but then the Historical Society would restore it back to being the single family home, which is actually now a museum and their headquarters. I want to go see it. So the paranormal activity that is taking place in in the Smith Octagon House was actually investigated once again by the group we had mentioned earlier, Midwest Paranormal Investigations. Now, according to them, this location had not ever been previously investigated, mostly because it stands as a historical museum. There are a lot of mannequins, antiques, and clothing that date back to the early 1900s that are located in the rooms there. They even have one of the dresses from Theta Clark Peters herself. Oh, that's amazing. Who, for those of you who are local know, is where Theta Clark, the hospital name, comes from. Yes. When they investigated this location, they pretty much got a lot of electronic voice phenomenon that they recorded, a lot of direct questions that were answered for them. So they captured a lot of audio evidence, but they also had some personal experiences while in the home that were visual. So seeing objects move. So my question is, is these guys are the only ones that are allowed in because it's a historical society, blah, blah, blah. How come they were allowed to go in? What were the historical society workers experiencing that said, hey, you know what? Come in, please. If there's anyone out there that used to be part of Midwest Paranormal, reach out to us. We want to chat. Yeah. Because typically when they release their information about their investigations, they usually have a section where they've talked about what the occupants have experienced. But I noticed when I was looking this one up that they didn't have that. 
Typically, when you have a location that allows you to come in, especially a location like a museum, it's because they believe there is paranormal activity there. One of the noises they heard was kind of crazy because it was a woman cackling. What? Yeah. So what other paranormal activity do we have going on in Nina, Courtney? Well, I'm so glad you asked. All right. I have a whole bunch of submissions from people off of Facebook. And we are going to start with Alec. And his submission goes like this. I used to work at the Doubletree Hilton downtown third shift. I had to go through the hotel and lock doors and turn off the lights. Whenever I would go through the kitchen or the ballroom attached to the kitchen, there would be cold spots and I would feel eyes watching me. One night, I was getting some silverware for a guest from the server station. While I was standing there looking down, I could see through the window into the kitchen in my peripheral vision and saw a woman standing there staring at me. She had black hair and gaunt eyes and was dressed in an outdated maid outfit. At first, I froze, scared to look up at her. But when I did, she vanished. I left to go do my rounds of the rooms and could not shake the feeling that she was following me around the hotel the whole time for the rest of the night. I had felt creepy things and heard creepy noises other nights, but this was the only time I ever saw anything. And a person has replied to him saying, I used to work third shift there too and hated going back by the ballroom. I swear when I was getting off the elevator after delivering receipts, someone whispered my name spooky place. I also have one from Ginger and she says, I used to live in a house on Isabella Street that was haunted. My kids would be playing video games and feel something playing with their hair. Their controllers would just go missing and we would find them in the same corner of the basement every time. We had a punching bag in the basement that would just start moving back and forth back and forth. We had an open little nook overlooking the living room and stuff would come flying at us randomly off of it when we were in the living room. The doors would slam. My kids and I all witnessed this and my husband thought we were all crazy until one day he called me at work and said, I believe you guys now. He was trying to sleep as he was working late shift and he felt something tugging at his toes, pulling his arm, thought he was imagining it and then something ripped the blankets right off of him. It was a fun house, laugh out loud. Ginger asked anyone if they'd seen the old sailor-looking man floating over the water over by the hospital. What? Yeah. And she says all she saw was it looked like he was literally walking on water. And he was dressed in a sailor's outfit that looked like it was from 100 years ago. It was all so odd. It was like it was all happening in slow motion. And when I got to the end of the bridge, he literally vanished. I thought I was seeing things, and when we got to the end of the bridge, my kids were like, Mom, did you just see that? I was like, what? And what they described to me was the exact same thing. None of us will ever forget that day either. Holy shit. We've got a submission from Kayla. She says, my old work in Nina has had lots of spooky things, but it's a child care center. Children laughing after hours, phones ringing from one classroom to another after hours when you are there all by yourself. And... Somebody responded to her saying, cars coming off the shelf when you're all the way across the classroom, rocking chairs, rocking without anyone in or near it. That's interesting. I wonder what the kids think. Our next submission is from Krista. She says, my house in Nina by Green Bay Road, about few months of living there, she was very pregnant. And one night someone kept pulling the sheets off about three times. And finally, she sat up because she was ticked. There at the foot of the bed was an old man with white hair, wavy, wrinkly face and either really, really sad face or angry. She says, I think it's sad. And I didn't let him speak being uncomfortable and prego. I told him to leave me the heck alone and never saw him again. The original neighbors from the 50s confirmed it was their old friend and original 
original owner of the house. Very meticulous guy, kind of like Monster House. No dust on my driveway. This has happened everywhere she's gone in different homes and places since she was a child. And she also says the warehouse off of Harrison is haunted. Doors slamming, screams, and pallets get lifted and knocked over that are too heavy. Now let's make a real quick distinction here. Is it the house that's haunted or is she haunted? That's valid because she also said she's got even more stories and her mom has stories. Mm-hmm. The way it sounds from her, I think both. Yeah. I was to say she must be sensitive to that energy and it tends to follow her. Our last one, actually, she's the last person, but we have quite a few stories from her, is from Melissa. She worked at Theta Clark Hospital for five years night shift, and there were so many things that happened to her. I'm going to give you a little background on Theta Clark Hospital, because it is a really important hospital in the Nina area. So back in 1903, Theta Clark Peters, who is the daughter of Kimberly Clark's co-founder, Charles Clark, gives birth to a daughter at her own home. And three days later, with no hospital nearby, Theta Clark Peters dies from complications of childbirth. In her will, she left $96,000 for a community project. $96,000 in 1903 money. Yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. Her family would then use that money to build a hospital in Nina. Theta Clark Memorial Hospital would open in 1909 with 20 beds, one operating room, one emergency room, and one delivery room. In the 1920s, an addition would double the size of the hospital. In the 1940s, the hospital constructs a four-story, 170-bed addition. In the 1960s, the hospital would expand again. And then in the 1980s, Theta Star Medical Helicopter would make its first flight. Then in the 1990s, Theta Clark Medical Center becomes the first level two trauma center outside of the cities of Milwaukee and Madison. And her family believed in it so much that her brother also put funds towards that. Yes. And they would also, um, in 2002, include a children's hospital of Wisconsin on their Theta Clark campus. So tell me, Courtney, what's going on at Theta Clark Hospital? So Melissa says that she even had patients tell her that they felt their rooms were haunted. It was always the same four rooms. And all she could do is listen to their stories and not tell them that other patients in the same room saw or felt the same thing. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) And now I have two more stories from her. There was one room in particular where I would be in doing an IV medication or something for a patient, and I would be charting on the computer, which is right next to the patient's bed, and the sink, which was over by the door, would turn on. They were motion-censored, but the door was closed, and no one else was in the room, and the patient was asleep. The same room, about two weeks later, I had a patient down the hall, and his wife told me that she thinks the previous room her husband had been in was haunted. I asked why, and she said she was sleeping in the chair next to him, and the sink turned on in the middle of the night. She thought a nurse had come in without her hearing, but there was no one there. Then she looked over at the bathroom, and there was an old man staring at her in the doorway. She said she was frozen with fear and couldn't move. Turns out it was the same room I had had the experience with the sink in two weeks prior. Another time, I was in a room at night doing an IV antibiotic as the patient slept and was documenting on the computer, and I heard the blinds being lifted up. I thought the daughter was doing it since she had been in there earlier in the evening, and I thought it was odd she wanted the blinds up in the middle of the night. I looked over, and no one was there, just the sleeping patient. I finished my charting outside of that room, laugh out loud. (laughs) 
No shit. She goes on to explain those blinds were ones that you had to pull a chain to raise and lower. So it wasn't like they were easy to move either. All the nurses who worked night shift had experienced and knew that it was haunted. Not surprising since it's a hospital that has been around for a very long time. Thank you to all of our submissions. Thank you to everybody who submitted. Yeah, we appreciate it. So we're going to head over to a very popular spot that's actually owned by both Nina and Menasha. And that area is called Doty Island. Doty Island is a unique location because it's connected to the Fox River. It's Winnebago's got a little bit of it, plus some of the canals. Right. And I think Little Lake Butamore is connected to So something important to know about Doty Island is the fact that a lot of things tend to float on Lake Winnebago towards it. The reason I bring that up is because our next story that Kent's going to share with us is about a plane crash. June 29th, 1972, two small airplanes collided over Lake Winnebago. Uh, One of them was from North Central Airlines, Flight 290, collided mid-air with an Air Wisconsin Flight 671. Both aircraft crashed into the lake after hitting each other in the air, killing all 13 people combined. So these must be smaller planes? These are very small planes. The one had only two passengers and a crew of three. The other plane had a crew of two and six passengers. So what would happen after those two commercial planes crashed is that people would start finding body parts of those who were killed in them. Not surprising. A lot of body parts. They would start washing up on the shores of Doty Island and some of the other shores of areas like High Cliff State Park, which is actually across the water from Doty Island. And it's also an incredibly haunted location. So Courtney is going to take us back onto Doty Island to talk a little bit about some of the history of the landscape there. At the turn of the century, 16 Indian mounds could be identified between Smith and Doty Parks. All but three of these mounds were leveled by island farmers and home builders. The three remaining ones are in the southeast end of Smith Park. The mounds were used for burial and also served a ceremonial or religious purpose. Holy shit, we know what happens when mounds start to get disrupted. This explains so much. It starts to get real. I mean, I knew that there were some, but out of 16, only three are remaining. Yeah. I'm going to tell a little about James Doty. The namesake of Doty Island. James Doty and his followers had discovered a 400-acre island between two branches of the Fox River. He was held in awe by the island he encountered as he swung his canoe out of Lake Winnebago and into the Fox. It was beautiful. Teeming with wildlife and vegetation, his diary includes his profound desire to own that big island and one day make his home on it. He eventually acquired most of it at the time that this entire land became officially the territory of Wisconsin, but he never dreamed that it might, and for generations to follow, be named after him. It was known as Hunt Island then, but the Indians who lived on its shore conferred the name Doty Island in appreciation of his close relationship with them. That was prior to them desecrating all those mounds, though, wasn't it? Yes, because <laughs> it was really uninhabited. Uh. <laughs> In 1844, after finishing his term as the second governor of Wisconsin Territory, Doty accomplished a lifelong desire to construct a log home on the shores of the Fox River South Branch. He had purchased 400 or 700 acres of island property, depending on which record one accepts, <laughs> for the purpose of development. Sarah, James's wife, named the newly built house the Grand Loggery. 
James and Sarah Collins Doty had two fine children, a son Charles and a daughter Mary. Their home on the island reflected much joy and hospitality and became the center for travelers and people of importance. It was far from being primitive. Having nine rooms and several outbuildings, the walls were plastered a sign of elegance in its time. Gardens and an orchard surrounded the home. The building was later relocated to the entrance of Doty Park, Nina, where it can be seen today complete with many original furnishings. That's awesome. So from what I've heard, the elite lived on Doty Island. Yes. Because when you visit this lovely island, whether you're in Menasha or Nina side of it, there are some big homes on that island. Yes. And also I've heard that a lot of the workers lived in the Menasha side and a lot of the owners of the companies lived on the Nina side. Even though the elite tended to live on Doty Island. That didn't always make it the safest place, did it? No. In fact, it says Doty Island was nearly always crime-free. There were minor cases of vandalism, theft, etc., but the felonies were almost non-existent. And now I have the Blue House murder. The Burt's family were pioneers of Doty Island. They had always lived on Winnebago Avenue, and the house at the top of the hill, which was built in about 1875, was their home. Grandma Burtz had lost five children during a diphtheria epidemic, and all were buried in the backyard. She grieved. Holy shit, there's people buried in their backyard. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if they're still there. I. That's what I said. I'm like, is this like a anyone putting in a pool? She grieved so for them that she would take her rocking chair out by the graves and sit there and do her mending. Oh, that's so sad. Later, when another house was built on the site, the tombstones were found in the high grass. Before the Burt's house was torn down, Daniel Rower and his wife and Daniel's bachelor brother, David, lived in that house at 330 Winnebago Ave. Daniel worked at the woodenware and had brought some blue coloring home from work with which to paint the house. This shocked community as blue was an unheard of color for a house. According to the newspaper story, David fell in love with his brother's wife and had asked them to move somewhere else. Dan agreed and got his brother-in-law. Mr. Metternich, to bring a dray to load with their things for moving. Mrs. Rohr was in the backyard hanging up a washing, and David walked back there and shot her with a thirty-eight revolver. What? Right. He's asked them to leave. They're going to leave, and he goes and shoots her. He then turned the gun on himself and fired it into his head. Coroner T.D. Phillips was called and pronounced them both dead. So is this the brother that was in love with the brother's wife? Yes. And that was the brother's wife he shot? Yes. And then himself. So if he couldn't have her, his brother couldn't have her. Right. So Daniel lived on in the house. Guy's got a pair. (laughs) And he eventually married again and had three daughters. He died in 1923 at the age of 64. Did they bury these people in the backyard also? That part doesn't say, but I'd kind of like to know what's going on at 330 Winnebago Ave. Anybody living at 330 Winnebago Avenue on Doty Island? Let us know. Or we'll come knock on your door. (laughs) Field trip. So what I'm about to present to you all as an idea that was shared by a gentleman known as Dennis Boyer. This was published in one of Dennis's books called The Northern Frights back in 1998. Dennis had never visited Doty Island before, but upon a visit, as he was looking at different locations and their paranormal activity, he came upon an idea of what might be going on in this area. And I'm going to share some of that with you. This is no ordinary ghost. Well, 
Maybe none of them are ordinary, but it's nothing like any of the haunted house stories around here. There's a strength here, an elemental force that's way beyond the understanding of anyone in my circle. Something that is subtle in its influence and deep in its raw presence. It comes out in ways that impact every area of human life. It's called the power. And it's the idea of domination, control, and subjugation. It's not empowerment. It's the ability to get others to suspend their critical faculties and to get them to ignore their self-interest. I come upon this because I had spoken with an old Belgian priest who told me that a shaman talked of a journey to the underworld to understand this power. You need to talk to a shaman to understand that. The explanation was that a powerful fallen angel, a demon, if you will, was not only cast out by the creator, but was eradicated. This malevolent force, though, was so powerful that it left a residual energy capable of considerable mischief. So what you have is one incredibly ticked off ghost of a spirit. The shaman says it was put here on Doty Island to keep it out of harm's way. (laughs) What a mistake. Who would have figured that this would become such a populated place? And who would have figured that local elites would have figured out how to tap into this ghost that appears to be on crack, steroids, and PCP? That's one hell of a... That's that's a kind of evil genie in a bomb case. No kidding. (laughs) It's a party. Doty Island is like the old South Crossroads. It's a place where you can make deals with this power. But it always collects in the end. Two very famous Americans came here to make deals for what they wanted. They're practically household names. Talking about Harry Houdini and Joseph McCarthy. So Mr. Boyer goes on to kind of discuss this, but what comes out of it is this idea that there is an energy present on Doty Island that spans between Nina and Menasha, right where the two meet, essentially. And he's questioning, was this something left here as a gift from the Fox tribe? (laughs) Lovely. (laughs) Or was it something that had always been present? And this power, even though it sounds more like, you know, the power of people to persuade, he actually believes it's like an elemental energy that causes basically the powerful elite to make deals with it so that they can get what they want and figure out how to manipulate and convince people into doing what they want them to do. Because if we look at some of the big things, as we've talked about coming out of this area, there's some huge national corporations that stem from little old Nina and Menasha. Yeah, these two little towns, they have big names in between the two of them. Yeah, they do. He also suggests that certain government entities like the FBI have also been in this area, even Mr. J. Edgar Hoover himself. And it makes you wonder why. What did they find out about here? Now, one of our guests to our live version of Paranormal Coffee Hour went home and thought a little bit about it and sent me some information on her take. I say thank you to Steph for this one. She said, you asked, what do you think causes all this issues? How interesting could that be if major tragedies in the area actually could feed the energy of this power? Oh, absolutely. Mm Mm-hmm. So we've talked about the paper mill, the George Whiting paper mill Mm -hmm. that has, (laughs) it's actually burned three times. Yes. 
We have talked about the plane tragedy over Lake Winnebago. And then there's just general tragedies that have taken place in the area. We have a trauma center located in Nina, a level two trauma center. On Doty Island. Yeah, it's on Doty Island. She says, so the lumber barons and the paper barons caused a lot of damage to the land, right? Here we go back to the land. Mm -hmm. And then the plane crash, big issue. Steph also commented that when she was living in the area near Doty Island, she said there was a year that 30 to 50 bald eagles came out of nowhere and roosted on the tip of the Menasha side of Doty Island. They did that for one season and they would never be seen again. Strange. Very. Coincidence? Maybe. You can't say they ate all the fish in the lake. Right? No, no Lake Winnebago is actually a very large lake. But it begs the question of what's attracting stuff to this one little island? We have lots of islands in Wisconsin, actually. Yes. So why Doty Island? What is so significant about it? Is there an elemental energy that's fueling everything else? All the hauntings, all the massacres, everything. And everything else that happens gives it its energy back. I was going to say, how many tragedies are there? And that kind of like feeds it like it's taking that as it fuels and then it takes. Right. Mm -hmm. It fuels the madness and takes the negative energy. How many tragedies? I don't know. I've lost count, actually. Well, right. So there's where we're going to end today. Is it coincidence that all these things are happening in the Nina Menasha area? Is it simply a historical haunting? with the tragedies that have happened with the Fox tribe and the different things that have happened since then? Or is there a more insidious, evil, elemental force behind all of this? Good questions. It's a good time to put down your cup of coffee and think about it. We leave you with lots of questions and food for thought. So as always, keep it weird. Keep it wonderful. And keep it woohoo.